The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawk Box with myself, Steve Cedric, and myself, Steve Cedric. These are your headlines. Chinese exports rise, breaking a six-month streak, but concerns over the world's second-largest economy remain, pushing U.S. crude prices below $70 a barrel. Wall Street posting its longest losing streak, to be fair, it was three days, uh, since October, after private sector payrolls coming weaker than expected. But the Amazon CEO, Andy Jassy, telling CNBC consumer sentiment is strong. Consumers are still spending. Uh, they're, they're being careful about what they spend on, and they're looking for bargains and deals wherever they can, and wherever they can trade down on price, they're trying to do so. JP Morgan boss Jamie Dimon lashing out at crypto, saying it enables a host of nefarious activity and calls on U.S. lawmakers to take action. I've always been deeply opposed to crypto, Bitcoin, etc. You pointed out the only true use case for it is criminals, drug traffickers, anti-money laundering, tax avoidance. And that is a use case. If I was the government, I'd close it down. And Muddy Waters Research found a Carson Block shorts Blackstone Mortgage Trust, telling CNBC a perfect storm looms for commercial property. We don't think that there's really any way they can maneuver out of this. We think starting next year, their businesses and their cash flow is going to be under significant strain. Uh, lovely to see you all this morning. There's a lot of very mixed data out there. I'll go through China in a few moments' time, but there's some good and then there's some concerning as well. Uh, the Chinese data, for instance, exports grew for the first time in six months in November, up 0.5% year on year. Now, that is compared with October's steep decline of over 6% and expectations of a more than 1% slide. Policymakers are hoping the improved trade print signifies support measures working through the economy. But... Are the trade figures about China or are they actually about the broader global economy? But answer is, of course, a bit of both. Imports fell 0.6% on the year against expectations for almost 3.5% growth. The trade surplus topped $68 billion. Now, that, that for me is fantastic. And Adam, the wonderful director, he's actually the supervising super director, is going to go straight back to that chart of there because I want to have another look at that import figure. Yes, exports were better than expected. So again, perhaps a barometer on global health. But the import figure, down 0.6% year on year. Well, what does that tell you, ladies and gentlemen, when we're looking for a 3.3% rise? Again, I think that is mildly concerning. Does it mean the world does not want the manufactured goods from China or is it actually a metaphor for the consumption in China? I'll give you another metaphor for the consumption in China, looking at the oil price. My goodness me, every time I looked at it yesterday, it was extraordinary roller coaster ride. So let's get this straight, okay? We've got huge OPEC production cuts. And yet at the same time, the oil price is slumping. It hit nearly $98 a barrel, Brent back at the highs at the start of the devastating war between Hamas and Israel. Yesterday, the price action was very interesting. And I put out a clarion call uh, to someone tell me why we're seeing such huge declines despite OPEC 
being apparently more disciplined, having more members, apparently with Brazil on board as well, and yet still seeing big declines. WTI down to 69.61. We also saw gasoline for our, our friends in the United States who are watching. You had your lowest prices in gasoline last week since January 3rd, $3.22. So I'm never going to hear any of you lot in the States moaning about your gas bill because I tell you, you should try and filling up in East Sussex. It's not so good. But one more piece of data I wanted to talk to you about. And this is Chinese crude oil imports. In November, they fell 9.2% year on year. Now, that's the first annual decline since April. Inventories higher, weak economic indicators, and slowing orders from some of those so-called teapot refiners, the independent refiners as well. So just a question mark again about the strength of the Chinese recovery. And we've got great guests on this in a few moments' time as well. So I just thought that was fascinating that the imports falling year on year for the first time in a very long time. Let's have a look at the dollar as well. Uh, the dollar index uh, has seemingly been on a, a declining trajectory, and yet for the week it is up the best part of 1% at the moment. You can see the euro, well, I say, I was going to say giving up, but it's flat as a pancake, isn't it? Dollar in, the dollar yen uh, trading 146.64, the pound 125.45 on the cable pair, and dollar yuan 7.16. Okay, I'm delighted to say I have at least one colleague. Admittedly, he's in Singapore. Uh, and he's JP, and he's looking at Asian equities. Lovely to see you, sir. Lovely to see anyone. Hello, Lisa, as well, uh, Stephen. Good morning to you guys. And yes, the data point we're looking at out here in, uh, in, in Asia, arguably, is that trade data uh, from China that looked rosy on the surface. And for the most part, it's because exports actually beat estimates and actually grew by about half a percent when many economists were expecting a contraction. Also, the first time we saw exports from uh, the, China, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest manufacturing base in the entire world, actually grew for the first time in about six months. And you'd think that would be a cause for celebration. But as you pointed out earlier on, one of the big cause for concerns is that dip in imports. And you're right to ask the question as to whether or not this is an indicator as to the health of the Chinese consumer. You mentioned the decline in crude oil imports in China also pointing at a possible economic slowdown. But it, overall, it's also important because when you think about the Chinese economic history over the last 20 years, their biggest macro challenge has been how do we rebalance and repivot the economy from being dependent on fixed asset investments, from being dependent on industry and hard infrastructure investments towards that being driven by the Chinese consumer. And this is something that the PBOC governor voiced just the other week when he said, we cannot depend on fixed asset investments, we cannot depend so much on real estate and uh, 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 construction to drive investments. And we have to look at the Chinese consumer and new industries. But if you see imports start to dip like that, suddenly you have to ask yourself, well, how feasible is this or how difficult is it going to be for the world's second largest economy to make that particular pivot? You're also seeing it play out somewhat across markets. And we are going to take a closer look, actually, at how some of these indices in Shanghai, Shenzhen, and Hong Kong are actually doing. Once again, a sea of red you're seeing out here in, in, uh, in Asia, led by losses by the Shanghai and the Shenzhen wars. Take a look at the Hang Seng gone by about 1%. But I want to take a look at two particular sectors. I think it's important to look at these, these two. Mainland property stocks down by about a, a fifth of a percent, out in, the ones listed out in Hang Seng, also connected to some of the worries about the property sector. But take a look at the Hang Seng Mainland Banking Index down by about half a percent. 
Today, Moody's, a day after they actually lowered the credit outlook of China to negative, they've also lowered the credit outlook on eight major Chinese banks, including that of the entire territory of Hong Kong. And this is important because the question now is, when you see some of these stresses in the property sector, if it starts to feed into the banking sector in China, well, suddenly you've got a whole new can of worms that they have to actually solve. And this is one of the things that markets are actually watching out for. If it starts to spill over into the financial markets and you start to see the outlook for some of these major lenders in China start to be called under question, well, then suddenly you have a new question mark as to, as to where, the, where chi the Chinese economy is actually headed and whether there's going to be feed-on effects or pass-through effects across the rest of the Asia-Pacific region. And it's also happening at the moment. You're seeing the Nikkei 225 down by about 1.8%. The cost be struggling to stay above, but they're currently a quarter percent lower. But we also want to take a close look at how the ASX 200 is doing because we do know that the Australian economy is very much tied to the fortune of the Chinese economy because they are one of the biggest suppliers of basic materials to the construction and property sector of China. If we start to see a downturn there and a lot of questions, well, that could also weigh on stocks out in Sydney as we're seeing at the moment, although they're doing better than most actually holding on and staying flat to the downside. But again, a tenth of a percent, it's nothing really to write home about. But so, this is the picture so far out here in Asia. And the big question, what is going to happen actually with the Chinese economy? And these are becoming more valid based on that mixed trade data that seemed rosy at the top, but when you look under the hood, a, a lot more question marks actually raised by that import print that we just talked about, Steve. Back to you. That was brilliant. Thank you, JP. Really, really great summary of everything going on. Well, look, I'm going to carry on your conversation. I'll pick up the baton with Frederick Neumann, who is Chief Asia Economist and uh, co-head of Global Research at HSBC. Fred, really good to see you. Look, I know you've already, uh, thank you, put out some copy uh, on the Chinese trade data. Again, really easy question. What do you think, sir? And this is not the turn that maybe markets had secretly hoped for. Look, uh, the economy remains weak. The import numbers clearly show that. And even on the export side, you know, we would fade that strength a little bit. Uh, yes, some of the Asian numbers have looked better on the trade front, Korea as well, Taiwan, uh, for example. But this is a lot of inventory adjustment coming through the global system that's not going to be follow through on the export side in the next few months. And of course, on the domestic side, with imports contracting again, that just highlights that there's still a steep hill to climb when it comes to generating that accelerating growth out of mainland China. Yeah, Fred, look, I mean, can we uh, look at this data juxtaposed to a lovely piece you put out um, six days ago? And it was your Asia chart of the week. And you were talking about green shoots in trade, uh, but asking the absolute spot on question as ever. Will they grow into sturdy trees? And you still have the same questions, don't you? Still have the same question. This is not something that really suggests there's going to be accelerating exports. Uh, yes, they're positive. But remember, there's base effects that kind of push up the numbers. We know there is an inventory adjustment going on in the world economy, particularly from U.S. importers. But all the forward-looking indicators, new orders for electronics, for example, new export orders, uh, uh, they all suggest that there is not a pickup in end demand. And in fact, it's more likely the U.S. economy will slow into next year. European demand looks still wobbly, and so does the rest of EM. So where is that demand going to come, come from for a sustained export cycle? And that's really a bit of a headache then for Asian policymakers, including in mainland China, because they need to rely on domestic demand to really get the, um, uh, you know, the engine going again. And for that, we haven't seen evidence of that happening just yet. 
Right, this is probably the most downbeat I've heard you for a while and concerned about the broader economy. And then we'll add in as well the fact that uh, crude oil, which I think is a brilliant barometer of Chinese demand, uh, not seeing the demand from the teapot refineries as well, down 9.2% uh, from the latest figures, one of the first year-on-year declines we've seen for a very long time as well. Um, you mentioned policymakers, and this is where I'm really fascinated as well. Fred, do we think that China does have the ability to to do some really heavy lifting when it comes to policy, or actually are they constrained by the fact that debts are pretty large across the board? So actually, we have no doubt that there's still a very powerful levers they can pull. Of course, there's a lot of debt, but there's no imminent constraint to raise it. The question is, do they have the willingness to do it at this point? Because the numbers aren't catastrophic in China. There's still growth coming through. Remember, the economy is ticking along around four and a half, five percent or so, uh, at least according to the headline numbers, it is not as if we see mass unemployment. It's not as if we don't see construction in, in infrastructure, for example. We do see that. So in some sense, the numbers aren't bad enough to really trigger a big, big stimulus. And that's, I think, a little bit of disappointment for the market because you're still hoping for the bazooka. But guess what? Growth is just not so bad that you really need to uh, bring out those those big, big stimulus packages at the moment. So we just like... Um, muddling through here for a while, and, and it's hard to see that pattern change over the next few months. Yeah, but Fred, I'm going to challenge you, if I may, in, in, in the loveliest kind of way, um, this discussion. You said it's not as if we see mass unemployment. China stopped giving us some of the most important data late in August as well. They stopped giving us youth unemployment data as well. And, and I remember looking at a, a Fortune bit of copy, and I just found the headline from it as well, uh, from some of the last data we had. It said China's record high. 21% youth unemployment, and this is Fortune's copy, not mine, could actually be as high as 46.5%. If that's anywhere near accurate, Fred, that is uh, mass unemployment. That is very high. That's very high unemployment for young people. If you look at broader indicators, actually the overall unemployment rate is now below what it was in 2019. Um, and so we haven't seen really news of mass layoffs. Yes, the job growth in the manufacturing sector is very sluggish or slight negative, but services have added jobs this year. The problem with the youth unemployment is really a mismatch in the labor market. We're graduating a lot of, lot of people from universities and we're not generating those types of jobs. So it's a mismatch issue with the youth unemployment. But I'm not sure that really we see a mass uh, uh, unemployment issue in China Surely the economy should be growing fast, so we want to see more income growth. But the point is really that there is still pockets of growth in China. It's not as if we're in a deep, deep recession here, despite all the challenges. And that means that policymakers are rolling out a measured policy response rather than something more aggressive. And I think that's disappointing the markets in, in, in some way. Yeah, and what hasn't disappointed the markets is what's going on on the other side of the Pacific as well, where there is suddenly this renewed focus on something that you and I and Karen and others have looked at for a long time. That is real interest rates. And actually what the Federal Reserve has now is real potential firepower if we get anything more draconian and more severe than a soft landing. They can cut aggressively if need be. I believe that that would probably have a very positive effect, not just on US uh, and, and, um, and perhaps European equities, but certainly global and perhaps Asian equities as well. Is it something that the, you think actually rather than the Chinese policy initiative, actually maybe the Fed could come to the rescue? That's right. And I think potentially there might be more scope for cuts coming through. 
uh, than perhaps a big policy package out of China. So yes, the Fed is a counterweight here against slowing global growth. And, and really, if things do slow down more than expected, the Fed, as you say, has firepower. I would say, though, that if the Fed starts to cut rates more aggressively than expected, it opens the door to other central banks to move as well. Even in mainland China, we can still see interest rates go down next year the, mo the moment the Fed moves, because, of course, that will make it easier for others to adjust policy as well. And so the Fed is kind of leading the pack, therefore, if the Fed goes, then it just makes it so much easier for everybody else to stimulate. So it's cascading stimulus with the Fed leading the pack. So that would be certainly a, a positive scenario. Um Let's find some other positive scenarios as well. We, we've talked a lot about China, Frederick, uh, but obviously you cover a much wider remit as well. Where are we seeing real pockets of strength across Asia? You really, the further west you go, India is still very strong growth. Third quarter GDP uh, was a blowout quarter. Again, there's some statistical distortions here, but the economy is doing well. Southeast Asia as well, despite bit of a slowdown in the trade-dependent economies. You still see decent growth coming through in Malaysia. You see decent growth coming through in Indonesia, the Philippines, for example. Um, but actually, one of the economies that has surprised with this resilience as well is actually Japan. Uh, despite everything that has happened over the past year, the weaker yen, uh, the rise in domestic inflation, actually the economy continues to, to tick along. And that means that, paradoxically, Japan may be one of the few central banks next year has gone tighten policy when everybody else is looking to ease policy. Yeah, that is going to be fascinating, isn't it, as well? And um, well, if they finally can do that and we, we finally actually see the yields going up and, and perhaps more of a repatriation that people have talked about from those JGBs. We've got to leave it there, though, Fred. Great conversation. Lovely to see you. Have a superb weekend. You're much nearer to... Actually, no, it's Thursday, isn't it? Never mind. OK, well, we'll have a good weekend if you've got Friday off, that is. Uh, Frederick Neumann, who is Chief Asia Economist and co-head of Global Research at HSBC. Getting ahead of myself, aren't I? Uh, meanwhile... Analysts expect a Chinese uh, property challenges to take years to resolve at the very least. Uh, that story, terrific story, Evelyn Chang wrote that one, that is on our website now. Karim Musalem, the CIO at Selwood Asset Management, has played down concerns over demand consumption in China. Now, speaking to CNBC, uh, Musalem said the downturn in the residential property sector has been offset by one major trend. The impact of interest rates has been very significant and you've seen destocking across the board, uh, particularly in copper, and that has obviously impacted prices. And there's also been, as you, know, you, you briefly alluded to, some macro concerns, in particular in China, yet when you look at the data, uh, consumption in China actually hasn't been that bad. And that's because the residential weakness has been completely offset by demand uh, for the green transition uh, in particular in China. And by and large, I would say China's actually been a little bit better than expected. The US has been okay. And it's really only in, in Europe where there's been demand weakness. But I think destocking is coming to an end. Um, one clear thing that I'm looking at is inventories, which are running very, very low. So I think there is really a case for a significant uptick from here. Okay, let's tell you what's coming up on the show. Bank CEOs testify on Capitol Hill against new requirements for US lenders. Uh, we'll bring you some more on this after the break. Plus, 
Amazon CEO Andy Jassy joined our US colleagues to discuss the strength or otherwise of the US consumer. We'll bring you that interview later this hour. And set your watch for this one. Brian Duffy joins us for an exclusive interview. He is the Watches of Switzerland CEO. Uh, that interview coming up at 8.15 CET. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Uh, welcome back. Let's take a look at the U.S. markets. Look, the one thing to say is we have seen three days of decline. I had this dramatic headline for you, didn't I? But we're not falling aggressively compared with the absolutely enormous rally we saw in the month of November. I just want to put it in context. So look, we're down three days in a row on the Dow, down three days in a row on the S&P. But we're down week to date, 0.5% on the Dow. We're down week to date, percent on the S&P, 1.1% on the NASDAQ as well. There are certain sectors that are getting an absolute pummeling. And guess what? It's the energy sector that's going most aggressively to the downside as we see WTI and Brent falling uh, pretty heavily. At one stage, though, the, the Dow was up about 170 points the, the, because there's a rhetoric out there. You guys know this better than I do. It's about, oh, soft landing. Every time people see a bad bit of, oh, fantastic soft landing. Oh, the job openings declined aggressively. Hence, on the jolts figures on Tuesday, that's good news. That means um, the heat's coming out of the economy. That means the Fed can cut numbers as well. Yesterday, we were looking at, what, the ADP days. We'll come to that. We've got a brilliant uh, bit of piece of uh, sound for you on that one. ADP came off. It was nowhere near as aggressive in terms of job creation. That's good news. But, but, you lot know as well as I do that actually you don't want to see a trajectory going below the flat line. You don't actually want to see big job losses. You don't actually want to see the consumer pulling in too aggressively as well, because that means that the landing is not going to be quite as soft uh, as you were hoping for. And there are just a few warning signs out there again. You know, those import data uh, out of China, uh, the price of oil at the moment. If things are so good and we're so benign, uh, why is the oil price falling so aggressively? Just a question. Just a question, I'm just chucking it out there for you as well. So in terms of data today, we'll get another nice benchmark. We've got the consumer credit data today uh, and tomorrow, which apparently is Friday rather than today, we have got the non-farm payroll data, which, which is actually going to be fascinating to pour into some of the big detail for that as well. Let's move on and take a look at treasuries as well. And this is something else that, that seems to have just been forgotten in the ether. It's nice to come back to a wall, actually. Look at this, 4.17%, yeah? I'm going to say something pretty big here. It's lower than 5%. Yeah, seriously. So the yield has come off 83 basis points, yeah? Which means some of the Fed's works, remember when the Fed was talking and Jay Powell was talking about the markets could do our job for us, and actually when it was 5%, it was putting it more in restrictive territory, pricing the uh, cost of money a bit more aggressively. Well, now down at 4.17, does that mean there is more work to do for the Federal Reserve? Now, this may be a, a brilliant barometer of a lot of things, but the fact of the matter is, the lower that yield gets, the cheaper money gets, the more work the Fed potentially has to do. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? If not, get in touch. 
Scorebox Europe, it seems still come. Or whatever our Twitter address is. It's at Scorebox Europe, actually. It's very good. Um, right, let's move on. Uh, have a look at the opening calls as well for the European markets. And we are called lower across the board. Um, FTSE 100 called down below 7,500. Zetra DAX. Wow, what a time the Zetra DAX is having. Record territory again yesterday. Actually, for the week, and this is quite interesting for you lot, up 1.6%. So actually a 2.7% outperformance, give or take the change, compared with the S&P. And, and the reason why the European markets are getting all excited all of a sudden, again, is because of rate cuts, potentially. They think the ECB is clearly nearly done. Let's move on. I mentioned the ADP. Job creation in the United States, private sector slowed further in November, whilst wages posted their smallest growth in over two years. That's according to the ADP. Companies added just over, I mentioned this, 103,000 employees last month, down on the month and well short of estimates. That's okay. It's all dovish, yeah? That's, we just keep going for the, 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 the benign scenario, shall we? Anyway, ADP says service-related industries contributed all the gains for the month. Um, the most excellent chief economist over at ADP is Neela Richardson, and she told CNBC there is a worrying slowdown in hiring in certain sectors. We're seeing leisure and hospitality go back to trend, but there's still some weakness in the labor market that I don't like. I don't like to see manufacturing slump the way it has, even though the strikes are over. We didn't see that big boost come back into the November. So there's some weakness in the labor market that I think is concerning. But overall, big picture, yeah, we're still on track for that soft landing that's been talked about. Uh, The weakness, though, should stay top of mind in the labor market. Uh, the U.S. economy should avoid recession next month, but consumer spending could still derail uh, that. That's according to Carl Weinberg, who was on the channel yesterday, wasn't he? He's the chief economist at High Frequency Economics. Uh, listen to what Carl has to say, or if you can't listen to it, read it on CNBC.com for more on that story. Elsewhere, bosses from Wall Street's largest banks testified on Capitol Hill, arguing against a new regulatory framework for lenders. The CEOs from JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs and others warned that the Biden administration's proposed capital increases could harm the U.S. economy and make lending more expensive. Leslie Picker filed this report. By recent historical standards, a relatively calm and civil hearing in Washington, the executives largely used the time to explain their distaste for the so-called Basel III rules that hike their required capital levels. By and large, they received little pushback from lawmakers, with several asking the CEOs to expand upon their view that the rules would have a trickle-down effect to average Americans. J.P. Morgan CEO spoke about how the rules would push activity outside the regulated banking sector, and Goldman Sachs' CEO David Solomon said it would push activity outside the U.S. The U.S. capital markets are the strongest capital markets in the world. I think it's one of our big competitive advantages that everyone comes from all over the world into our capital markets. If you think about IPO activity and debt capital raising, it's done to a great proportion for international, for international capital in our capital markets on a relative basis. And this would just shift that, that balance. It would push more activity into other jurisdictions. It would make banks and other jurisdictions more competitive. Um, and I don't think that strengthens the U.S. position over time. And, and- Senator Sherrod Brown, a Democrat and chair of the committee, was the only lawmaker who came out in defense of the capital proposal, saying we need strong capital requirements to ensure that investors, not taxpayers, are, quote, on the hook when risks at the bank don't pay off. For CNBC Business News, I'm Leslie Picker. Yeah, it's a great debate, isn't it? Uh, during the hearing, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon reiterated his deep opposition to cryptocurrencies, telling lawmakers he'd shut the sector down if he worked within government. 
Senator Elizabeth Warren asked Diamond why criminals are attracted to cryptocurrencies. I've always been deeply opposed to crypto, Bitcoin, etc. You pointed out the only true use case for it is criminals, drug traffickers, anti-money laundering, tax avoidance, and that is a use case. Uh, because it is somewhat anonymous, not fully, and because you can move money instantaneously, and because it doesn't go through, as you mentioned, all these systems have built up over many years, you know your customers, sanctions, OFAC, it's, they can get bypass all of that. I, if I was the government, I'd close it down. And you can read more of Jamie Dimon's thoughts on crypto. Head to cnbc.com. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.